1: Hello and welcome to the Keeper Cup podcast. I am your host, Chad Young, joined as always by Pete Ball. And we are here today to talk about corner infield. It is, uh, it's not as exciting as I want it to be, Pete. (laughs) No, it definitely
2: isn't. Um, Third base, you know, I've been talking about how thin third base is, it feels like, for definitely over a year now. But first base too, as we were just discussing, it's, uh, things kind of look grim. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's just not as not as nice as they usually do. Before we dive into that, just a reminder that we are a proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, leave ratings and reviews. You can also follow the show on Twitter at KeepOrCut. You can follow Pete at Baseball. You can find me at Chad Young. Always happy to hear from you. Feel free to reach out and tell us what we get wrong on these rankings. Two weeks ago, we did catchers. This week, we are doing first and third base get back to middle infield and outfield and pitchers before too long. But yeah, I first base, you know, I I'm, I'm so used to first base being deep deep, right? There's a million first basemen. You could wait forever on first base. And I feel like right now there's like the top of first base is as strong as ever. There are legit studs at the top of the first base position. And then there's like Fifteen guys who are kind of all the same, and none of them are that exciting, and they all have real warts, and I'm sort of meh on all of them. And it's it's a weird, I don't know, it's a weird space. It isn't it it isn't a case where, you know, for so long I felt like there was no reason to jump at a first baseman early. You could, but like, why take Vlad or Freddie in the first round when you get whoever you know ten rounds later? Now I feel more like they're like five guys I feel really good about. And then I get a little bit more concerned and then I might wait, right? If I don't get one of the top five at that point, I might just be like, eh, we'll just see what what happens. But it's not a, we'll see what happens because I know I'm going to be happy about it. It's we'll see what happens because I'm going to be nervous no matter what. Right, exactly. Format does matter. So Chad and I really
2: kind of tried to ignore guys who most likely wouldn't be drafted at first base. So that included names like Austin Riley, Kyle Schwarber, um, guys who next year will, I'm not sure if Schwarber will have first base eligibility, uh, but I know that Riley will. And there's a few other names there that are really just, just names that we tried to ignore, tried to filter it down to to true first baseman, especially since we're looking long-term guys who are going to maintain eligibility at the position. But you're right. I mean, when I first started playing back in 2008, I'm trying to think of the names and it's like, obviously there was there was Pujols, there was prince fielder there was mark de but it just felt like as the draft went on there were still awesome first basemen i think my first first baseman in fantasy was ryan howard and it's just a position that we've kind of taken for granted but it has gotten thin and i think part of it is as these older veteran awesome names you know begin to fizzle out your miguel cabreras your albert Pujols, and they certainly have fizzled out for a while but there's others as well Votto uh, comes to mind they haven't really been replaced by elite First baseman, and I, I think that's ultimately the issue. We have this chasm between these veteran first basemen that have been doing it for a while, and then there's not a whole lot after that. So I'm interested to see how our conversation goes today, Chad. I'm in a gladiator league right now. Have you have you heard about these gladiator leagues on NFBC? I have. They're they're interesting sounding. Yeah, they're. Uh, that's why I signed up for one. They're you just dropped a starting lineup, right? That's it. Twenty three players, and that's it. There's no additions throughout the season, two catcher, regular positions, five outfield, middle infield, corner uh, infield, and utility, and then nine pitcher slots. And I've kind of been, because it's a 15-team league, I've been really cognizant of the positions that I'm drafting. You know, I wanted to take Devers. I wanted to take Marcus Semien to, to get some, you know, third baseman, second baseman. But now I'm, we're kind of deep into the draft, I guess. We're, we're past pick 100, so we're well into it. And I still don't have a
1: first baseman, and now it's in the back of my mind like, man, this position stinks. Yeah, yeah, and then in a, in a format like that, you can't really go with some of the platoon bats that are interesting, right? And we're, like, we're not going to talk about him today, I don't think. But like, Josh Naylor, I think is a is a guy I really like, and you can only really use him against right-handed or left-hand. Sorry, right-handed pitchers. You can only use him against right-handed pitchers. He's a left-handed hitter. You can use him against right-handed pitchers, and so. In a, in a format like that, his value is really dinged because you can't put him on the bench when you need to. He's just in your lineup every day, and that's just the way it's going to go. And, and there's a there's a number of those guys. I think as you move down the list at first base, right, or and at third base, actually, when we get there, right, a guy like Brandon Drury becomes interesting. He's at both of those positions. You've got you know Trey Mancini, who I like better when you can use him for his. With, with a platoon advantage. You've got Jared Walsh, who I like better when you use him with a platoon advantage. Like, There's a handful of guys like that and they're just, you know, Rowdy Tellez, much better when you can use him with a platoon advantage. And Those guys are, are way less interesting in, in that gladiator format. So it's an right. interesting one. But with that, let's jump into our top 10 lists. I'll start off by reading. We're going to start with first base. We'll go through our first base discussion. I'll start with Pete's top 10 first baseman for keeper leagues. And he starts off with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., not a huge surprise there. Freddie Freeman second, Pete Alonzo third, Matt Olson fourth, Paul Goldschmidt fifth. And actually I'm gonna stop there for a moment because we have the same one through five. So we are actually we have the same one through seven. My goodness. So <laughs> Vlad Freeman, Alonzo Olson, Goldie. Then we both have Vinny Pascantino sixth and Nathaniel Lowe seventh. Your eight through ten is Reese Hoskins, Andrew Vaughn, Tristan Cassis. I switched Vaughn and Hoskins. I have them eight, nine instead of nine-eight. And then I have Anthony Rizzo as number 10. So a lot of overlap here. The only players who are different are Rizzo and Cassis, who we have as both having our 10th spots. And then we flipped, like I said, Vaughn and Hoskins. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to talk about at the top of these lists. And I think the, the first place to start here is Paul Goldschmidt at fifth, because I sort of surprised myself by having him that low. And then you did too. So (laughs) I'm sort of curious, like, why did we both have him so low? And I'll let you, I'll let you answer for yourself. And I'll tell you if I agree. Uh, Well, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, right? It's, it's age. We're we're ranking
2: yeah. keepers, and although I don't I don't think Goldschmidt's going to hit this cliff, and he was frankly being disrespected for a while in fantasy, and and you and I stayed true to Paul Goldschmidt and kept ranking him appropriately on these lists, and and actually we kind of underranked him because he performed even our expectations, um, and for sure. I, I don't think we're ranking him five is any kind of disrespect now, but it just I, like any other player, and this isn't a novel take. I have a hard time drafting them after a career season. And at age thirty-four, Paul Goldschmidt went out and won an MVP award. Uh, And the thing that maybe sticks out a little bit is, you know, seven steals last year relative to the rest of his career. um, You know, that's actually kind of low. But I, I don't know if you can bank on seven steals anymore. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if he finishes his year with two or three. And if you are in a roto format, I wouldn't ignore those five stolen bases. That's not why necessarily I'd have him fifth. I just when it comes to age, and you look at the four names above him. It's hard for me to imagine that long-term, I, I'd rather have him than any of those four names. As a matter of fact, I think he's probably probably closer to six than he is to four um, because I view those top four first basemen so highly.
1: When I look at him, I think the thing that I struggle with a bit is he was... So let's start with this. Rasball player raider, just as a, a good starting point, he was number two on the Rasball player raider. Not number two for first baseman, just number two. The only guy ahead of him was Aaron Judge, who you may have heard had a decent season. (laughs) It's hard to argue with that. And then I was like, yeah, but you know, that was a bounce back year for him. And Then I went back and I looked at the 2021 final player Raider. Goldschmidt's number 14 on there. He's the first first baseman on the 2021 player Raider as well. Now, part of that is he steals bases and other first basemen don't, and stolen bases tend to be overvalued. So there is some, I think some debate there about whether he's really as highly ranked as the player Raiders tend to put him. But then you go back to 2020 and he was much, much lower. He was the 23rd first baseman in 2020. in 2019, He was the 12th first baseman. So yes, the last two years have been great. And I don't think, I don't want to, and I don't mean to downplay that. And I would have him a little bit higher up if this were redraft. But in a keeper league where I do care about that long-term value, he is, I think, riskier than the guys ahead of him. Because we've seen him, and and it's not this isn't just like oh at some point he's going to age out. He's going to be is he going to be thirty six this season? I think 35. is that right? Yeah, he's thirty five now. He turns he turns thirty six at some point next year, but not till like September. Fine, coming up on his age thirty five season. Obviously, an age at which players can can decline at any moment. But it's not just that he could decline at any moment. We've seen the down years, right? We saw them in 2019 and 2020. And so it, it's hard to know once a player shows that decline, like when's it going to pop up again? Now, again, in, in redraft, I'd feel pretty good about him. I think he'll have another good year, but I think the risk is higher. I think that 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 for me is enough to just nudge him down this list. Now, to that end, why not put him below Vinny Pascantino, who if you're talking long term, is young and super talented. Yeah, that was that was
2: definitely something that I kind of struggled with, but at the same time, it actually really wasn't much of a struggle. I mean, this is this is the balance when we're ranking keepers, right? Because so much of it is is nuanced and and your league specific. But if we were talking dynasty, where you know I can just lock a player up for the rest of time, then sure, I'd take Pasqualino. But I, as good as he was last year, he's got a while to go before he's what Paul Goldschmidt's been. And and you're getting absolutely no speed from Pasquantino, whereas if Goldschmidt's speed does keep up, then that's obviously a huge advantage for him. So um, I would understand an argument if if we were to say that uh, we want to put Pasquantino above Paul Goldschmidt. But for me, uh, I, I can't do that yet. Whereas the other four guys ahead of him, we've seen all of them put forward amazing, consistent fantasy elite production.
1: Yeah, I, I think the other thing that that stands out about the five guys in those top five spots versus Pascantino is the lineups they're in. And in five by five, that still matters a lot in terms of scoring and driving in runs. Vlad with the Blue Jays, who are maybe not having the, the best offseason in terms of their offense, but are still a very strong offense. Freddie's with the Dodgers who are still the Dodgers. The Mets are going to score plenty of runs. Atlanta just keeps trading for good bats from other from I would say from other teams. They just keep taking the best bats from Oakland every offseason, Olsen the last one and Murphy this year. Like that offense is going to be great. The Cardinals offense was very good last year and should be again. And then Pascantino's on the Royals. And that is just it's a big hit and I think it shows up like if you look at their NFBC ADP's You've got Vlad and Freeman both within the top 15, 11th and 13th. You've got Alonzo and Goldschmidt in the in the 20 to 30 range, 21 and, t- and almost 30 for Goldschmidt. Olsen a little bit further down at 47, but there's a big drop before you get to Pasquantino at 90. And I think that just shows that, like, you know, to me, the sort of one to one and a half round ADP difference between Goldschmidt and Olsen. Is probably close to fair in redraft. I think I'd have Olsen a little bit closer to Goldschmidt than that. I think he he still could have a, a really huge season, his second full season out of Oakland. We'll have to see. But that but there isn't enough in the age, and there's too much risk with Pascantino to, to drop him, to drop Goldschmidt below him. Which brings us to the guy behind Pascantino, which you mentioned as we were taught, you know, prepping for this episode, we both had Nathaniel low seventh and you were like, man, I was reluctant to put him there. I don't, I don't, I really struggled with that one. I I struggled a bit too. And yet, I don't know. It, it seems like the right place to put him. It's where it's actually, again, it's where he is in terms of ADP. It is, if I look at last year's player Raider, he was actually a little lower than that. He was ninth among first basemen. Although one of the guys ahead of him is Brandon Drury, who I think is more likely to be ranked at third base. But wh- why, I guess, why were you reluctant to put him there? And then why did you, how did you come around to that decision? Yeah,
2: no, it's both good questions. I was reluctant to put him there because to me, particularly in keeper formats, as as awesome as Nate Low performed last year, Like it just feels like a huge drop off after Pasquantino when we're talking about like upside and their potential range of outcomes. And I feel like going from Pasquantino to low, that's like a noticeable drop off from six to seven there. The other thing is like, I mean, I I don't even know how to put it into words because he hits both sides so well. It just felt like last year, I, I don't know. I want to see him do it again, I guess. I'm not ready to make the plunge. His walk rate plummeted, which was weird. He has had a a really strangely high, like extremely high BABIP so far throughout his major league career. And I, I'm wondering if that at some point is going to level off. I mean, he barrels the ball a lot. He hits it hard. And his line drive rate is has been fine. I mean, in 2020, it was definitely an outlier at 36%. But I mean, it's not like he has some kind of Batted ball profile that suggests he should have the super high babip. And he's obviously not a fast guy. He's 44th percentile sprint speed. So I'm curious what happens if that babip reverts a little bit. If we get more closer to what he was in 2021 and before that, as opposed to this like crazy breakout under the radar 2022 that has somehow shot him up the first
1: base rankings because the rest of the position just doesn't seem that exciting. So another guy who had a similar, I guess you'd call it a breakout last year, although really he put up the same season or a very similar season in twenty twenty two as to what he did in twenty nineteen is Christian Walker. Neither of us have him in our top ten. But I mean you look at what Walker did last year. Again, going back to that Rasball player raider, Walker was fifth. Goldschmidt, Freeman, Alonzo, Vlad, Walker. Olsen, CJ Crone was behind him, then Brandon Drury, and then Nathaniel Lowe. And again, I think you and I both, you know, neither of us put Walker in our top 10. I I think for me, I, I struggle with Walker because, and this is a little bit like what we talked about with Goldschmidt. He was so good last year, but we've seen as recently as 2020 and 2021 what the bad version of Christian Walker looks like. And it's it's a step down. It's a meaningful step down from from where he was this past season. And even in 2019, when he sort of put up the same I guess we'll say the same raw numbers that he did, similar raw numbers to what he did in twenty twenty two. Twenty nineteen was the rabbit ball year, right? And so those same raw numbers just weren't as meaningful. And so this season really stands out for him as something he just hasn't done before, and he did it at age thirty one. Yeah, the the
2: Christian Walker one is a little weird. Um, at age thirty one, he's a little bit younger than you might think. I, I, for some reason, in my head Christian Walker was older. Um, I, I think there are some things that he did that might end up being sustainable, like the the strikeout rate was under 20%. And you look at the swing strike rate, that plummeted for him. Um, he's a career 12.5% guy. And that's only that low because this year he was at 10.2%. I say this year in 2022, his swing strike rate was 10.2%, which is awesome for someone who earlier in their career was just a strikeout fiend yeah. and was posting back-to-back seasons of 33%. So if he really has cut down on that on the strikeout rate and when he makes contact it's thunderous then like sure he could he could sustain it but he, he again kind of fits this mold of like out of nowhere guys like you said after the age of 30 not that low is after the age of 30 but just first baseman who came out of nowhere exploded on the scene with power and it's like do you are you ready to go all in on that is that real Or do you want to see it for another season? And when we're talking about keeper leagues, I want to take guys with track record or guys who were supposed to have this huge upside and we're yet to see it. Walker and to a lesser extent, low kind of fit that mold.
1: Yeah, and I think with Walker, as I'm looking at him now, part of me, I, I wonder if I should have put him in there over Rizzo in my top 10 and maybe even above Hoskins and or Vaughn. Because not only did he have that the power breakout last year, but as you said, he, he he made big strides on his strikeout rate. He posted the second best walk rate of his career. And he had a 248 BABIP. And he is not like there's nothing in his profile that suggests he should be a 248 BABIP kind of guy. Now, he increased his flyball rate last year. And so that had something to do with that. But if he sort of keeps doing what he was doing and gets more reasonable batted ball luck, there might actually be another level there. So I, I'm sort of as we're digging in more on Christian Walker coming around to the idea that he he maybe should have been in the back part of my top ten. And I may I may go grab a couple of Christian Walker shares here and there. Cause I'm I don't know. I, I'm I'm looking at this and I'm like, well if I'm gonna put low at seventh, <laughs> why why wouldn't I be comfortable with Walker right near there? So yeah. I, I would have I would have Walker
2: above Rizzo and I, I would definitely have Walker above my number 10 in redrafts in redraft I, for sure. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I keep thinking back to what you said of basically this like not much changing and just kind of coming out of nowhere. And like, yeah, the, you brought up the fly ball rate. Right? It, it went up a smidge, like less than two percentage points. Like otherwise, nothing in the batted profile looks all that different. Um, it it's kind of inexplicable. So I'm curious to see if he does it again, but I'm not holding my breath.
1: Yeah, I think, I don't know. It's worth gambling on as you get into this back half of the top 10 area, right? We, we talked at the beginning For about sure. how like there's this top five and then it's sort of like, oh, I don't really know where to go from there. And, and I think if you if Walker's the guy you want to gamble on, get it. Speaking of gambling, Tristan Cassis is your number 10. I mean, this is, look, the guy's been tremendous in triple a can't argue with that he's got all of 95 major league plate appearances they were good they weren't great they were good but you've got him already already at the back of your top 10 so other than wearing your red Sox colored glasses what's pushing them up there for you yeah um honestly
2: i'm I'm going to sound like I'm full of it because I have Tristan Caz's number 10, but I, I'm usually down on Red Sox uh, when it comes to fantasy. It's kind of like this, well, if they're good and I don't have them, at least they're good. And if they're bad, at least I don't have them in fantasy. So I'm usually actually irrationally low on Red Sox when it comes to my fantasy analysis. It just came down to like looking at this blob of first baseman, right? This Reese Hoskins, this Jose Abreu, Anthony Rizzo territory, and just deciding, well, if I was in a keeper league, kind of know what i'm gonna get i kind of know the best case scenario of what i'm gonna get from those names but what is the best case scenario of a 22 year old tristan Cassis? and i i think it's something that we may be underappreciating like the red Sox are gonna suck there's no two ways about it but this guy's because of that i don't i don't think tristan Cassis is in a whole lot of danger and when you look at his numbers from last year like it does look disappointing Um, for sure. But it was very limited plate appearances. Like you said, uh, this was a tweet. I I don't even think,
1: I don't even think it was disappointing. It was fine. It just, it's 95 plate appearances. And for a guy in his first 95 plate appearances, like it's totally fine. It wasn't, to me, it wasn't disappointing. It's, it's more that I think it's asking a lot for him to sort of make a leap to the next level. He certainly has that capability, But I also think he could sort of do what he did last year, a little bit less OBP, a little bit more slugging, maybe, but like similar. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I would expect
2: the average to go up. Um, This was a tweet from Boston Sports Info that caught my eye last year, and I I just keep thinking about it. He tweeted players in MLB history in their first 70 plate appearances with more than five home more than or equal to five home runs. And more than or equal to 14 walks. And the list is just Tristan Cassis in the history of baseball. And I think that speaks to his plate discipline and his ability to to take a walk or to put the ball in play. And when he does, it's obviously hit pretty hard. And even with everything seemingly going wrong outside of the plate discipline last year, at least on the surface level, like the ground ball rate was extremely high. His ground ball rate during his brief taste of the major leagues last year was 56.6%. It's like he was facing Fromber Valdez for every at-bat. And yet in AAA, it was at like 38%. It was, it was like below league average at AAA. So even with all of that stuff going wrong, his WRC plus plus in those, you know, give or take 100 plate appearances was 120. Um, and this isn't a player who's come out of nowhere. This is a player who was drafted in the first round who has torn up the minor leagues. And now he's kind of arrived. Now I made that mistake with Spencer Torkelson last year, but I think it's working in Cassis' favor that he has had that major league experience He's not in a ballpark like at Detroit. He's in a ballpark like Fenway park. And I just, I just in a keeper league find him more exciting. Than these other blob options.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think for me at number 10, I went the other direction, which was at this point I have, I don't have enough faith in almost anybody else I could put up here, except now that we talked about Christian Walker, maybe Christian Walker. And so I just went with Rizzo. Cause I was like, Rizzo's safe. Like, He what he did last year is what he's going to do this year. I think I don't think there's any reason to think he'll be anything other than what he was, and what he was was very solid and useful. (laughs) And so I'm I'm more confident in him. Like he finished twelfth on the Ball Player Raider among first basemen last year. I am more confident in him than I am in even as we talked about the Walker upside. I'm more confident in him than I am in Walker. I'm more confident in him than I in him. Than I am in CJ Crone, Brandon Drury, Jose Abreu. Like, I just, Rizzo's just gonna do what he's gonna do. And I'm very happy with that. And at some point, you get deep enough in this list and it's like, "Eh, I'm just not gonna worry about the long term. I'm just gonna take the guy who's gonna produce. Yeah, that's, that's totally fair. Rizzo returning to Yankee Stadium was the best possible thing for his value, obviously. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, there's two more names I wanna talk about before we get into our best value, worst value, and prospects. One of those is a guy we we both have on our list. The other is a guy neither of us has on our list. Andrew Vaughn, we both have on our list. You have him at number nine. I have him at number eight. Andrew Vaughn was not number eight or nine in the Raswell Player Radar last year. He was number 20. So this is a pretty significant jump. From an ADP perspective, Andrew Vaughn is the 12th first baseman off the board. So again, we're pushing him up pretty high. This is one, though you know, I'm starting to, to second guess, like, should I have put Rizzo on there or not? I have no second guesses about Andrew Vaughn.
2: No, I, I don't either. I, they need to get him, you know, permanently out of the outfield. Uh, but yeah. like one of his concerns is, is obviously the launch angle and it went down in 2022. But that also coincided with him putting forth his best season. His exit velocity looked awesome. He had a strong uh, max exit velocity. With Andrew Vaughn, like the only way he becomes as valuable as you and I want him to be, though, is if he starts hitting for power. And that means he's got to start hitting the ball in the air. But I'd, I'd be cautious to be super concerned about that because this was a concern we had about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And look how that turned out. I want to say this right. was a concern we had about Reese Hoskins. He's a power hitter. So it will come with Andrew Vaughn. At least I think it will. I don't think it's going to hurt him that that um, what's his name? La Russa is out of the White Sox as well. I think that could only help him.
1: Yeah, there was talk last year that Larusa was really pushing them for like, you know, pushing their power hitters even to be more contact oriented and stuff like that. And it's like, that's just don't don't do that. Like, so I think getting La Russa out and having a. An opportunity for a different approach and a different mindset in that, that clubhouse is really gonna make a difference here. I think having Jose Abreu out of the way means that Vaughn should be at first right. base and or DH and just there and there every day and there's no questions, he has to worry about other positions. And, and so I'm I'm looking for a, a I think I think a breakout is coming. And I mean just to just to put this in some perspective, he had a 327 woba last year. Steamers projecting him for 338. So there's all like even the projection systems, the computers are looking at what's out there and saying this guy is going to going to reach a new level. I actually think there's a level above that. And so that's, that's sort of where I am. The other guy I wanted to talk about, just because he was inside the top 10 on the player radar and neither of us put him on our list, is CJ Crone. For me, this completely comes down to course and the fact that you really can't use Crone on the road. And I, I know, you know, we, it's weird. I've almost flipped the script on how I feel about Rockies players because for so long it was like, oh, this guy's going to be in Colorado. He's going to score. He's going to mash because he's got the thin air and blah, 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 blah. And more and more now I'm looking at guys and I'm looking at someone like CJ Cronin. It's like his WRC plus at home last year was 132. That was a 400 WOBA. That is awesome. It was a 274 WOBA, 74 WRC plus on the road. (laughs) And one of the things we've talked about in the past in the show is that playing at cores not only makes you better at home, it actually makes you worse on the road it it is harder to adjust to pitches cuz they behave differently and so i look at that and it's like you get 81 games from him you cannot play him on the road like that's that is atrocious offense and so the only way you can roster cj crone is if you're you're in a league where you have multiple first basemen or where he's your util and you got multiple util options if you don't have the depth to do that And and first base is not the position I want to be doing that. I would rather plug in a first baseman who I can really count on. You can't always do that. I get that. But if I can't, if I can't take, like, I'd rather take Josh Naylor, who I think will do more damage against lefties than Crone will do on the road, right? Even, even on the bad side of their split. And so I, I don't know. It's a... That's my issue with Krohn. I don't know if you have a different issue with him.
2: So here's the thing: I think Krohn is is super useful if you can stream him and only use him at home. But for like sure. if we took him, if we took him out of cores, I don't, I, I don't view him as a top twenty first baseman. Like he, he's he's put forward some strong seasons in the past for sure. But like I don't think the talent is that great. Like when I look at Trevor Story or I look at Matt Holliday, Nolan Arenado, whoever, when they played in cores, like I'm gonna deal with on the road and and still get excited about them if they get traded outside of those places or if they sign outside of those places, because the talent is still very good. I just don't think that's the case with CJ Crone. He's only had one season where he averaged over uh, 90 miles an hour in terms of exit velocities, always put forward high max exit velocities, but he's never been this. Like, I think physically we look at him. He's like a big bulky first baseman must just hit for a ton of power. Again, he's, he's had some power seasons in the past. He's, he's had one 30 Homer season. That wasn't even last year. That was all the way back in 2018. He's just not that good. So, like, I, I to me, Coors helps him because he makes him useful. If he wasn't there, I, I'm not take I, he's not a starting first
1: baseman to be in a 12-team league. Yeah, that's fair. That's totally fair. So let's jump to our best and worst values. Your best value, we've already talked about, it, so I don't think we have to go into it in much depth, but you you said your best value at ADP, which over the last month or so, Tristan Cassis's is ADP at NFBC is 239 you're calling him your best value that I mean you have him in your top 10 if he's in your top 10 that's incredible value so I'm there's I have nothing to argue with there I just look at the names ahead of him uh the, the three names
2: at na- first baseman ahead and well we won't even count Arias um but Seth Brown Joey Manessis and Josh Naylor like I I don't know if Cassis has every day at bats for the Red Sox and he's one of the top 15 prospects in baseball. How is he not getting drafted ahead of those guys? I don't get it.
1: Yeah, the guy I I put up as my best value ADP, and I I won't argue with As I think, well, I don't have him in my top 10. I think at that ADP, he's a great value. But Josh Bell, Josh Bell going a little bit earlier than that. His ADP is around 192 over the last six or so weeks. Cleveland is not necessarily a great stadium to hit in but I think it's the best stadium that Bell will have ever played in for offense. (laughs) He's been in some really bad ones in, in Petco and Pittsburgh. And so I think there's a big boost in there. He is a guy who has talked about hating hitting against the shift. The shift will be gone. And, you know, last year, obviously he spent half the season, less than half the season, part of the season in, in San Diego with a very good lineup, but it was, you know, he was in an awful situation in, in DC with the Nats. The Cleveland lineup is not necessarily you know, the the best lineup in baseball. There's a lot of on base percentage that will be ahead of him in that lineup. He is going to be coming up with guys on base all the time, and so I, I think that he's being sort of undervalued because I think people are underrating what an improvement his situation is right now. So that's that's me. I I really like him at that you know just at just at the end of the top 200 type spot. Yeah. Worst obviously. value. Oh, go
2: well, I was going to say, obviously I thought, I thought of you when I saw he went to the guardians. Um, oh, I was so happy.
1: I'm, I'm like, still so happy.
2: <laughs> if, if Josh Bell, we've seen Josh Bell swing a hot bat. It doesn't matter what the lineup is. Like when he was hot at the beginning of the year, last year, the Nationals sucked and he was awesome. Then he went to having, you know, Juan Soto and Manny Machado batting around him and he was absolutely abysmal. So I, I wouldn't worry about his situation in Cleveland. I, to me, it's all up to him. If he's hitting and actually getting the ball in the air, instead of maintaining that 50 plus percent ground ball rate, then uh, Josh Bell's exciting. Yeah. I like that.
1: Yeah. So worst value at ADP. I'll I'll go with mine first. This time I went with Jose Abreu. He is the eighth first baseman off the board. He is going at one fourteen, and looking at the guys going after him. So we talked about CJ Krohn already, but I would I think I'd rather have CJ Crone than Jose Abreu. I'd certainly rather have Reese Hoskins, who's going at 122. Especially after our conversation now, I'd rather have Christian Walker at 135, Andrew Vaughn at 143. Get into Jose Miranda after that third base situation, but Anthony Rizzo at 157. And for me, the the issue with Abreu is I keep seeing people be like, "Oh, he's going to love hitting in the Crawford boxes and blah blah blah," and like, okay, yes. That is theoretically true. He will enjoy hitting to the Crawford boxes. It is a great, nice, short porch to target. The home run park factor there, like if I look at Baseball Savant, the home run park factor at Minute Maid Park is 101. At Guaranteed Rate Field in Chicago, it is 124. Now, for right-handed hitters, since we want to be specific, For right-handed hitters at Minute Maid, the home run park factor, 102. Just a little bit better than overall. Guaranteed rate, it's 120. Yes, he will love hitting the ball towards the Crawford boxes. This is a worse park to hit in than the one he's coming from. Last year, Jose Abreu had 15 home runs. (laughs) Now, he had 30 the year before that. He had 19 in the short season before that. But... He's, you know, we talked about this with Goldschmidt. Like, Jose Abreu turns 36 in January. So he is, he is, he's older than Goldschmidt. His launch angle went down last year. His barrel rate went down last year. There's, there's some positive there. His hard hit rate was still up, but I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of risk and I think that, his draft price is baking in way too much power upside for me. Yeah,
2: the power thing with Abreu is is weird. Um because at the end of the day you draft him for RBI and home runs and he got the plate appearances and just didn't perform in those two categories. But I, when it comes to a guy getting older there's a few things to look at. You can start looking at ov- obviously average exit velocity and and Abreu's was way actually way up compared to it was uh compared not way up compared to where it was last year, but it was up from where it was and he's pretty much maintained it since the year before his mvp season um and it's not like the home runs disappeared because he hit way more line drives he did hit more line drives but it didn't really come at the expense of his fly ball rate that much less than two percentage points it's not like he was pulling the ball significantly less he was pulling it about a half a percentage point less than the year before so like i really find the homer thing just kind of baffling, so I don't think it's necessarily a ballpark thing in either direction. I don't think this one's going to necessarily be better or worse. I just think he had weird homer luck last year. His whiff percentage against fastballs would be something that I would look at, like his age finally taking a toll. He whiffed a lot less. His batting average against fastballs last year was 297. His expected batting average was 311. So he's not having like your traditional, oh, this guy's getting older. He's having trouble catching up to the fastball. He's not hitting the balls hard anymore. Like Those things are still happening. I just... It's completely inexplicable that he had 15 homers and 75 RBI in 679 plate appearances last year. It's it's baffling.
1: Yeah, and maybe I'm just taking that too much at face value, but I, I am I am concerned about it. So prospects at first base. We've talked a lot about Cassis already. He's obviously the the main guy. The other guy who's gonna get time this year, I think, is Matt Mervis with the Cubs. Who knows what the Cubs are going to do? I guess, but as of right now, it it looks like. I mean, if I go to Roster Resource right now, they have Alfonso Rivas at first base. They also they have Matt Mervis uh, as the DH, so they have him in the lineup already. And Mervis, I think, is an interesting prospect. I, I, you know, I like him less than Cassis. He's riskier. He hasn't really hit major league pitching yet, but he actually has better AAA numbers than Cassis did, and so that's intriguing. He's also Already almost 25, which he was. This was his age 24 season, he just finished, which is a little old for AAA. So maybe a grain of salt there. But I, I really like what he brings to the table. If you're looking for a first baseman to stash longer term, Kyle Manzardo with Tampa is showing some pascantino like ability. And I think he'd be a guy, I don't think he'll be up this year. He's not on the 40 man, and they don't need to put him on the 40 man. So I think it'll be a little while, but think he could be the next interesting first base prospect.
2: I like it. Yeah, I like Mervis. I think you're right. And, and, and roster resources, right? I kind of expect him to play in the The projection systems are interesting on him where this is kind of the the difficulty with projection systems where if Matt Mervis is, is pacing out with 20 homers and 122 WRC plus, then he's going to play more than 97 games. And chances are those those other plate appearances, if he's maintaining those numbers, are going to be very, very good. So the projection systems really like Matt Mervis.
1: Yeah. So take a quick break. When we come back, we'll go to the other side of the diamond and look at third base. All right. Welcome back. As mentioned, we're going to jump over to third base now and like first base, some studs at the top. And then it gets a little bit more questionable. We have the same top four, but a slightly different order. We both have Jose Ramirez first. You have Rafael Devers, third, and Manny Machado, second. I have Devers, second, and Machado, third. We both have Austin Riley, fourth. And then we start to mix things up a little bit. So starting from fifth, I have Nolan Arenado, Alex Bregman, Bobby Witt, Jr., Gunnar Henderson, Jose Miranda, and Matt Chapman. You have Witt, fifth, Arenado, sixth, Bregman, seventh, Gunnar Henderson, eighth, Chapman, ninth, DJ LeMahieu tenth. I also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right to this. I'm going to jump ahead. When we get to our worst ADP value, Bobby Witt Jr. is the guy I have as my worst ADP value. And even though we've only looked at a couple of positions so far, I'm going to go ahead and say right now that Bobby Witt Jr., whose ADP over the last five and a half, six weeks, is 7.45, is the worst ADP value in NFBC right now at any position. And I think it's <laughs> crazy. Legitimately crazy to me that he is going that high now. Part of the reason that he's going that high is that he's he has shortstop eligibility for NFBC. So, like, is he really more valuable in NFBC than Manny Machado, who goes eight picks later than him? If they were both just third baseman, maybe not. But eight picks might be enough that that he'd still be going that high. I, I just don't get it on Wit. Wit last year was the fifth best third baseman on the player rater. That is now I, I don't know how the player rater handles position adjustments, but he is shortstop eligible there. So he's the fifth best third baseman, but shortstop eligibility might impact that. We know that he steals a lot of bases, which we've talked about in the past can be overrated by the player raiders, And yet he's going as the second one off the board seventh player overall and i just like i don't understand what people are expecting from him because he got 632 plate appearances last year he's not getting much more than that he'll probably get less if i had to if i had to bet an over under at 632 i would bet less gets dinged up at some point misses some time doesn't get to that many plate appearances he had the 20 home runs and 30 stolen bases that's great He only had 82 runs and 80 RBIs, but as we talked about with Pascantino, that lineup is not very good. He had a 254 average, but he strikes out a decent amount. He doesn't walk very much. He's going to be very BAPIP-dependent on getting that batting average up, and I don't think he's going to. So I think he could very well go out and do exactly what he just did, and if he does that, that would be a great season, and his draft price will look terrible. If that's what happens. Yeah, I I can't say I feel too differently on
2: Bobby Witt Jr. I think in the industry, you and I are are definitely on the lower end. I think for some people, it's as simple as this is a guy who went 2030, was a top prospect, 22 years old. And this does matter. He's on a team that loves to run. Um, so like, I wouldn't expect those stolen bases in the short term to be going anywhere. You know, you brought up the average and how he's going to be pretty Babip dependent. I agree. And that's going to be a problem for him if he keeps doing what he did last year, where he was all fly balls. I mean, his fly ball rate was over 10 mm-hmm. percentage points higher than the league average. If you were hoping to get more batting average out of Bobby Witt, then you need it was that way
1: in triple a. And it was that way in double a, right. he's a fly ball hitter.
2: He just is. And, and the launch angle up at nearly 17 degrees, like if you want the average to go up, then then you need him to, to lower that launch angle, hit more line drives, hit more ground balls. And there's just nothing that suggests that's going to happen. And so even with hitting all those fly balls, the average exit velocity, the the how hard he was putting the ball in play wasn't strong enough to really give him that many homers. He had 20. Now he's gonna get older, he's gonna get stronger, and and all that's great. But if you have a guy who's got a fly ball rate that's that high and his home run to fly ball rate is only 9.3%, well, you could say that, you know, maybe some some positive regression, as people like to put it, is coming his way. I don't know if that's gonna be as much as they think. And I think you could have a season of like he's good, he's one
1: of your better players in your roster, but he probably wasn't worth that first round pick you used to get him. Yeah, and, that, and that's what it really comes down to, and that's where you know I have him seventh on my list, and you have him you have him fifth. The guys like I put Arenado and Bregman over him. You have Arenado and Bregman right behind him. Maybe I'm overreacting, right? Maybe I'm just so annoyed that he is being picked so high, and I'm like, no, I would push him all the way down to seventh. Like maybe he should be fifth. But, like, I cannot see taking him as a third baseman over Devers, Machado, or Riley. And he's going over all of them. And I don't think I would take him over Arenado or Bregman. And, I, you know, he could very much prove me wrong. I don't see... I think he is more likely to have a little bit of a, a rough sophomore season and take a step back from what he was than he is to actually move all the way up to being a first round value. Like again, on the player Raider last year, he was 26th overall, which is either late second round in a 15 teamer, or early third round in a 12 teamer. I think he's more likely to perform like a fourth or fifth round pick than a first round pick. Now, that's not to say I would wait till the fourth or fifth round to take him necessarily, but that's. I don't. Know. I, I just think there's a lot of risk that is that that price just doesn't come close to accounting for, and so that's why I have him so low. I, it's half of it is just he wasn't he wasn't this good last year, so I don't know why we're suddenly expecting that he'll he'll take, he'll make a big step forward. I, I can't I don't know. I can't see putting him in my top two, and that's what his ADP is asking me to do
2: and what could really work against wit is if stolen bases are a little bit more uh in volume and dispersed around the league right because that that's why he's going so high i mean it just is yep. like uh, these early drafts these, these draft and holds these gladiator leagues they're they force you to kind of commit to drafting like guaranteed stolen bases, which which junior is, you never know what you're going to get from Machado there. Devers is not going to offer any steals. Riley's not going to sure. offer any steals. So I think part of it is not part of it. I think the entirety of it is, is the stolen base potential.
1: Yeah. I also think you, you mentioned it's a team that likes to run, but they have a new manager. So we're going to see good. what their, That's a good what point. their style is. And if it changes now, I don't think he's going to run a whole lot less, but I don't know. I think you're, I just think you're asking a lot to assume that he's going to steal, even stealing 30 again, like 2021, which is really his only minor league season across double A AA and triple A. He stole 29. He was caught 11 times over that time too, which is, is not a, it's not a bad percentage, but it's not great. I, I don't know. I'm, he was much better last year, but you're again, you're now you're expecting him to be a better base stealer. And, and I just don't see the path to improvement. That oh, here's the thing: like the the even if he hits thirty
2: stolen bases again or he gets to forty, like that's awesome and that's really exciting. But is that that much better than you know the forty to sixty more runs plus RBI that Austin Riley is going to give you over Bobby Witt junior right. like, I, I don't know if that's the case. Like it's all, you got to draw the line somewhere when it comes to stolen bases, right. and I don't know if 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 that outweighs it.
1: Yeah, agreed. The other guy, the other young player that we both have on our list, I've got one, th- a third young player, but the other young player we both have on here is Gunnar Henderson. Henderson, I I don't know. I, I think all the stuff I just said about Wit and like how, how where how do you get so confident when he's never done anything like a first round value before? Henderson has obviously not not done even as much as Wit did. So what's he doing this high up? Well, part of it's the
2: position, right? We're getting close to the drop-off. I'd rather take Gunnar Henderson, and I, I don't, I, I, don't know exactly where this would be, like the ninth round, as opposed to Bobby Witt Jr. in the first. And Witt Jr. has a lot more going for him than Gunnar. Gunnar definitely a, a higher walk rate. Maybe he's going to get better, be better at getting on base. But as quick as Gunnar Henderson is, he doesn't quite have that Bobby Witt Jr. speed. But he is a guy who's capable of, of you know, potentially rattling off twenty-five homers and twenty stolen bases this year at a position that is is really rough what's working against him and and why I have Ryan Mountcastle as my first baseman to avoid, or I don't know if I kept it that way. Yeah, I did. Worst ADP value at first base I had Mountcastle is that ballpark for Baltimore is rough. And I, I yeah. could see that impacting somebody like Gunner, who, you know, is not a massive power hitter, but somebody who could hit for power. Uh, I could see the ballpark kind of working against him, although he's a lefty, so he'll have that working for him, but he's not going to go the opposite way at all in the early parts of his career.
1: I I will say from a fantasy perspective, this isn't as, you know, it's not as true because of the much lower stolen base number, but Gunnar Henderson projects to be a better offensive player than Bobby Witt Jr. Sure. His, His steamer projection is a better projection than Witt's. His numbers last year, smaller sample size for sure. But his numbers last year were a better, more offensive value than what Witt provided. And and I do think that there's an aspect here where I just think, I think he is a more complete player. He's not going to steal you bases the same way, but I think he's more likely to give you, I think he has a better path towards a better average. I think he's going to get a base a lot more, which means more runs. I think he's a better hitter. And so, you know, we'll see how that plays out. When I look at my list, it feels a little weird having them next to each other. And I'm probably putting them too close to each other. But part of that is that after that seven, Ramirez, Devers, Machado, Riley, Arenado, Bregman, and Witt, in whatever order you want to put them, we both have Gunner eighth. And then, man, it gets messy at third base. I put Jose Miranda ninth. And you have Matt Chapman ninth. I have Chapman tenth. You have LeMahieu tenth. There it's none of these guys are guys that I'm like, oh yeah, this guy is just an absolute stud. Everything's great. The reason I put Miranda first among those guys is I think a little bit like we were talking about with with Cassis, like he had a strong minor league track record. He wasn't great in the minors last year, but 2021, he had a 431 WOBA in double A, 416 in triple A. He was a guy who a lot of people thought was going to break out and have a great season. He ended up having a very good season, a 117 WRC plus, right? That is excellent for a rookie. But if you cut off his first 60 or so, I think it's like 63-ish plate appearances, something like that, you end up with even better numbers. I'm trying to pull this up right now. But he had 483 plate appearances on the year. If you cut that 483 down to his last 420. So you cut off his first 63 plate appearances. He had a 134 WRC plus. He was legitimately excellent, super talented, had a great season once he adjusted. Now, as soon as you say something like once he adjusted, you're getting into arbitrary endpoints and like, is it really once he adjusted or were those just, you know, the bad 60 plate appearances and the good 400 and it's, he'll have those bad 60 every year and whatever. We'll see. But even if he doesn't bounce back and not bounce back, even if he doesn't perform like he did outside of those first 60 plate appearances, last year he had a 268 average. He had 15 home runs and just 483 plate appearances, which would easily go up to over 20. 45 runs and 66 RBIs. He hit pretty low in the lineup. He should move up in the lineup. He started the season off and hitting like sixth, seventh, eighth. By the end of the season, he was leading off. A, a decent chunk of the time for the Twins. And when he wasn't, he was hitting second, third, fourth. He'll be in the the heart of that lineup this year. And, and if you look at the 420 plate appearances of those 15 home runs he had, he hit 14 of them in that 420 plate appearances. Like the, he has a real path to 20 to 25 home runs with a good average, a lot of runs, a lot of RBIs. He's not going to steal you any bases. He's just not. He had won last year. He might get zero next year, so be it. That's <laughs> fine. But I, I'm I'm a I'm really excited about him. I think his upside is really high, and so this is a this is a case where I think he is a risky play as the ninth third baseman off the board in keeper leagues, but the upside is big. Yeah, I'm I'm a Miranda fan. Um, back when he was
2: posting those ridiculous numbers in AAA, I was trying to get him off pitcherless, well, formerly a pitcherless, Dave Sherman, in one of our odd new leagues for quite some time. I wish I was able to pry him. I put DJ LeMahieu 10th there as kind of like a statement. Looking at my list, I did have Miranda ahead. Oh, no, I did not have Miranda. I had Chapman, I'm sorry, ahead of LeMahieu. And I have LeMahieu ahead of names like Suarez, like Miranda, who we were just talking about, and, and like a few of these other guys, as kind of like a statement where... I don't want to forget about D.J. Lemayhu in drafts. And when I look at a name like Jose Miranda, that lineup around him is just going to be bad. And so when we're talking about keeper leagues, we're not talking about five to ten years out. We could be talking about just who's going to be better over the next three years. And that's still an aggressive thing to say for D.J. LeMahieu, who's clearly over the last two seasons kind of fallen off a little bit. But I I think there's a really good chance that LeMay, who gives you better value than pretty much all these guys like Josh Young and his his basically 40 percent K rate, never taking a walk. And like, how long are we going to wait for these players? A Gunnar Henderson, a Bobby Witt, a talent like that, I'll wait. And you know what? Maybe I'll reach just a little bit to get them over someone I might feel is going to be better in 2023. But DJ Lemayu, I could see just a consistent, safe skill set being better over the next two to three years than some of these dart throws, and so I didn't want to forget about him at uh, at number ten. But I am a I am a Miranda fan.
1: Yeah, and I think in terms of that consistent, safe performance, uh, we both put Matt Chapman on our list. You had him ninth, I had him tenth, and at least for me, and you can tell me it's like it, it's sort of similar to what you're saying about LeMayhew. It's it's a totally different skill set, right? It's a totally different statistical profile. Yep. He is going to absolutely bury your batting average he's not going to steal you a single base but he hit 27 home runs in oakland in 2021 he hit 27 home runs in toronto in 2022 i would bet on him hitting something around 27 home runs again in 2023 and he's going to do that in that toronto lineup where he'll probably hit lowish in the lineup and so the runs might not be super high but last year he had 83 runs 76 rbis like it's hard to argue with that. So, i i, I don't love Matt Chapman. He's—he's he's not my my favorite guy. I think though, as you get lower down in in ADP, like he is thirteenth, third baseman off the board by ADP. The guys, if we go from you know starting at ninth, you have Eugenio Suarez, Max Muncie, Jose Miranda, Cabrian Hayes, Chapman at thirteenth. Josh Rojas, Alec Bohm, Brandon Drury, Josh Young. I still, by the way, haven't gotten to Lemayhu. Lemehu's 21st. But I think you're getting into a point here in the draft where you're going to have to just choose what you want. Like, Brian Hayes, maybe he breaks out, but you're really just buying him for stolen bases, I guess. Lemayhu, you're really hoping to get just average out of. You got guys like John Birdie in there who are just stolen bases. If you're building a team where you need some power, Matt Chapman is a, like, you can get him as one of the last starting third baseman taken and he'll provide you power and runs at RBIs. And that's that's a, a very useful place to be. So
2: I, I got to ask because I, I agree with you 100%, but what made you go Chapman over
1: Suarez? That's a, that's a very fair question. I, I think for me, Suarez is... I guess he feels riskier, and maybe that's not fair, but... You know, in, in 2021, he had just a 198 batting average. It was 202 the year before that. I know Chapman's not going to be great in batting average, but I, I think he should be a little bit better than that. Last year, Suarez was up to 236, so maybe he's going to recover some of that. But that was a 302 bat from him, and I don't think he'll repeat that 302 bat bet. He also had fewer runs, although more RBIs last year. I I don't know. They're They're very similar to me. I Chapman feels less risky. There's less upside maybe, but I think there's less risk. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't even know if there is less upside
2: like Suarez has the monster home run seasons in the past, but the ballpark difference between, you know, where he was in Cincinnati and where he is now in Seattle is so drastic that I don't know how much that that really holds up. Suarez has had a nice little career resurrection, particularly last season, but I think, I think I'm with you. I like Chapman just just marginally more, but I do view them extremely similarly.
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of... I don't know. I'm going back and forth. I think this is also one where like Suarez has, I think, more on base upside. Although Chapman walks a decent amount too, so maybe that's not even true. I don't know. They're very similar. They're very similar. And maybe... As I'm looking at it now, maybe I could have switched them. Maybe I should have switched them. Chapman's a couple years younger. Maybe that makes a difference. I, I don't know. They're very close. Very close. So let's jump to our best and worst ADP values. I already talked about my worst ADP value being Bobby Witt Jr. We don't need to rehash that. But you just asked me about Eugenio Suarez, and you have him as your worst ADP value. So talk to me a little bit about that. Where
2: he's going right now, and obviously we're not looking at Keeper League ADP because there's really no such thing, but where he's going right now in drafts I think is like the beginning of a tier, and so almost like by default. I have him as the worst value because I look at the first eight third baseman off the board. It's Jose Ramirez, Bobby Witt Jr., Manny Machado, Rafael Devers, Austin Riley, Nolan Arenado, Alex Bregman, and then Gunnar Henderson. Now there's a teardrop from Bregman to Henderson for sure. But to me, Henderson's in his own spot where like there's tremendous upside, there's stolen base upside. He could kind of be an all categories contributor for you. And then we get to the disappointments and the like. Guys like Chapman and Suarez, who like you just know what you're going to get. There's a very clear drop off. And so if there's a new tier, well, I don't want the first name in that tier. I'm going to want whoever the last name is for me. That's DJ Lemayhew, and the first name in that tier is Eugenio Suarez. So it's nothing against him. It's just kind of by default, I, I viewed him as the worst worst value going right now.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And I think you know you and I are. I mean. At some level, just defining the tier a little bit differently because I went from Suarez down to Josh Young in ADP. So Young is a two ten ADP versus Suarez at one forty seven. Lemayhew's all the way down at two forty nine. So it's a, it's a bigger drop off to get to that next group. And Young, to me, I put as my best value ADP because I see him in a similar sort of three to four round range, four to five round range, maybe with some of those other guys but with the most upside of that group. Um, now, Miranda, maybe I should have said Miranda at, at 157, because as, as I already said, I'm pretty high on him. Young going more than 50 picks later, though, has similar upside, but more risk. And so I don't dislike Miranda at his ADP by any means. But I think if I was just going best pure value, I don't know. I mean, Young, like, yes, he had that 38.2% K rate last year. It was only in 102 plate appearances. He hasn't really put up a large number of plate appearances in any season, which is a, a concern in and of itself. But in 2021, in AAA, he had a 21.8% K rate. It jumped up in 2022. But we just haven't seen, like, consistent playing time from him. And I think when he gets it, I think he'll strike out at a lower rate, which I think will put him in a position to put up a... a more interesting batting average and and gives him some real on base upside as well, given his walk rates in the minors, although it did not translate last year at all. So I, I just really think where he's going at the price he's going, he just offers more, more possibility than the guys around him.
2: Yeah. I like the Josh Young pick. You remember we have Matt Heckman on, I know he's, he's a huge Josh Young fan. So I'd be interested to see what his yeah. take was on, uh, young strikeout rate last season, but you're right. I mean, it was a tough spot, right? He was called up after, after an injury, supposed to start the season with the team. We all thought he was going to start the year as the third baseman. And I want to say he had shoulder surgery. Um, So, I mean, I can imagine like, Hey, here's what major league pitching is. Hope your shoulders feeling. Okay. Go get him, sport. Like I I totally understand him having a disappointing season. So I don't, I don't mind rolling the dice um, with him at, at that ADP for sure.
1: Yeah, so we talked about Young is my best ADP value. Lemayhu is yours, sort of for similar reasons, just depending on how you define a tier. Bobby Witt Jr. is my worst ADP value. Eugenio Suarez is yours. Uh, in this case, for very different reasons, I just think Witt's being way overdrafted. You're, you're, you're not even necessarily saying Suarez is being overdrafted. It's just if you're in that tier, wait till the end of it, not the beginning of it, which makes total sense. Then we get into prospects, and we, we've talked about some of them. We talked about Gunnar Henderson. We talked about Josh Young. There's a couple of other names for this year that I think are interesting. And they're both in a sort of similar spot where they both play for teams where there's nothing really right now today stopping them from getting playing time. But if I told you that one of these teams was going to like sign Dansby Swanson or do something else and and suddenly clog up their infield further. It wouldn't be a huge surprise. And those two guys are Miguel Vargas of the Dodgers currently slated to be the third baseman on roster resource and Brett Beatty of the Mets currently slated to be in the minors by roster resource. But the Mets, I mean, as much as the Mets have done like Mark Canna in left field has still been a bit of a disappointment and Eduardo Escobar at third base was very much a disappointment. Dan Vogelbach at DH has been fun, but I, I don't know how confident I am on him keeping his job. Like there, there's some, there's some moving parts in that, that lineup and any number of those guys could end up opening up room for Beatty to take a job, you know, Canna struggles, so they move Jeff McNeil from second base to left field, move Escobar from third to second, and move Beatty into the lineup. So both the you know Vargas right now today has the clearer path. Hard to know what either of those teams is going to do between now and opening day. I listed Beatty on my list, and you put Vargas in yours. Do you prefer Vargas to Beatty? I do, and actually, for
2: for what you were just describing, well, first of all, from just a talent perspective, I, I like Vargas a little bit more. Um, I think he's I think there's a little bit more upside there, a little bit more expected apparently you know depending on who you read steve cohen is not excited about the offense you know like they, they made a lot of moves but he still thinks that team does not have enough offense and so i can't imagine the rookie third baseman who in a very short stint last year only hit 184 granted that was with a strikeout rate under 20 percent. that was with a BABIP of just 179 you know I'm, I'm not like cooling on brett Beatty because of these 42 plate appearances But if you are Steve Cohen, and you're looking to improve an offense. I think that's a part of the the diamond that you put a circle on. And, And maybe that means Beatty ends up getting moved because all of a sudden free agency is really starting to thin out. Whereas on the flip side of that, you look at Vargas, like the Dodgers are a team that love to play their own young talent that is not going to go out and make some $400 million signing. I think, like you said, it's more likely that Vargas starts the year in the lineup. And I'd like to see him get a fresh start. He's just so good in the minor leagues. And you look at the steamer projections for him. They're projecting a 122 WRC plus 20 homers in just 130 games. And again, if someone's pacing out 122 WRC plus 20 home runs, he's probably going to play close to 150 games, assuming he stays healthy. So those numbers could be even better. The steamer seems pretty high on on young guys, on prospects this year. But,
1: but yeah, that's where I'm at. Not, not as high on Beatty, but definitely on Vargas. Yeah, makes sense. And I, I like both of them. I think, you know, the interesting thing for me at third base when we talk about prospects is we talked about Henderson, Young, Beatty, Vargas. After that, it's sort of a weird position where like, like I'm looking right now at the board on Fangraphs, which is their, their rankings. It's not a fantasy ranking. It's just an overall ranking. But the guys that they have sort of after, they have Henderson, Young, and Beatty as the three best overall third base prospects. Then they've got Colson Montgomery with Chicago, who's very interesting, but is double A, probably at least a year away, maybe two. Junior Caminero with Tampa Bay, who's only in A-ball. Colt Keith with Detroit is in a high A. Arelvis Martinez is in double A with the Jays, but he, I don't think you'd get to see him this year. Brady House with the Nats is in A-ball. Like There aren't a lot of guys who are knocking on the door unless you talk about like Jordan Groshans, who was a really interesting prospect not that long ago but the shine has certainly come off that and for I sure don't know. so i don't see a ton of uh, of super exciting third base prospects coming up behind these guys at least not for you know there isn't anyone i would stash is what i would get at because if i'm stashing a guy in a keeper league Dynasty, different story. But in a keeper league, I want to stash guys who are going to be up either late this year or next year. And after Henderson, Young, Beatty, and Vargas, I'm I, I'm sort of happy to just let this position go.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd say I'm in the same spot. I'm I, I'm monitoring Austin Martin. He's a guy who kind of like Groschen's projected fantasy value has really wavered over the years. But he he's a guy I'm keeping a close eye on. I know he's moved back up some dynasty rankings, and he's certainly close to making his debut. He's 23 years old, and uh, I want to say this is his third year since being drafted. I'd have to I'd have to look that up. But, I, I mean, either way, he's a guy I'm keeping an eye on, but I'm in the same boat as you. I'm not ready to make the plunge in that position. If I'm missing one of those top guys who's making their
1: debut already, I'm, I'm not stashing in a keeper league. Yeah, makes sense. Totally agree. So we've covered first base. We covered third base. When we come back in a couple weeks, we're going to do something a little a little different uh as you guys know we've got a couple of listener keeper leagues that we've been drafting one of them we had some manager turnover and pete and i have been co-managing a team we're gonna we're gonna break up the band we're each gonna take our own teams but because we're doing that we are we're losing a team we built together and one of us is gonna get to keep that team and the other one isn't and it's uh this is not an amicable divorce. There's a lot of talent on that team that we've been stashing. Team got off to a rough start, and we started to sort of focus on on the future. And as a result, I'll just pull up that roster real quick right now. It was very injury-ridden.
2: Um, I mean, that was like Chris Sale, Shane Boz, and yeah. Jack Flaherty were our one through three
1: starters. So, yeah, I mean, the, the team just – you're right. There were injury issues. There was It wasn't just that it was a bad team, although by the end of the season it, it was – but we worked really hard, and I'm, like, I'm just looking at free agents we picked up, just guys that we didn't draft that we picked up as free agents, and Michael Harris II, and Andre Jimenez, George Kirby, Anthony Santander, Nick Lodolo, and then you get then you get into like Alexis Diaz, who's an interesting guy, Lars Newtbar, Bryson Stott, who even in having lost shortstop, that shortstop position is interesting, Ezekiel Tovar, is he a keeper? I don't know, but he's certainly interesting. And then in guys we drafted late, we, we, we drafted and stashed Tyler Glass now. I think Alejandro Kirk, we got, I don't know, we got him in the 20th round. I'm not sure what his ADP is this year, but he should be far more valuable than that. So the point is that the team that we are that we worked on together has a bunch of value on it. And whatever team it is we get left taking over, it, it won't have as much value. And so our next episode, (laughs) what Pete and I are planning to do is hold a draft. We haven't quite figured out the details yet, but hold a draft where all the players on our team and all the players on the other team that we take over are put into the pool. And that way we can both end up with some of these guys that we together stashed and some of the guys from the other team that we didn't want to stash. And then we'll go from there and figure out how everything sort of pieces together. but. That'll take us to the end of this episode. Like I said, we're gonna do that draft next and then we'll get back into these positional previews and rankings and stuff like that. Well, I got a quick correction to make
2: about something I said earlier. So Austin Martin, just going back to him, we were talking about prospects, we were kicking around. He was drafted in 2020, so he obviously missed the 2020 COVID season. He's been in the minors twice since then, but I was wrong. I was looking at third-base dynasty rankings on fantasy pros, but I don't... Austin Martin's not going to come up with third-base eligibility when he comes up. Minnesota acquired him as a center fielder. He's been playing a little bit of shortstop, but there's no third-base in his future, as of right now, anyway. As of right now,
1: yeah. Although, who knows what that team might need, I mean, depending on who's healthy and stuff like that, like I don't know, we'll have to see what they do with him. we'll have to see, but with that we'll let you go, this is our this episode should be coming out on Monday the was that Monday the 20th, Monday the 19th Monday the something I think it's Monday the 19th 19th, Monday the 19th, yeah, and then we'll be back with you, which means that's it, you don't get us through the holidays, you're on your own for Christmas you're on your own for New Year's, you're on your own for Hanukkah we'll be back with you (laughs) on January 2nd with that draft episode. So, hope you have a good holiday season. Good end to your 2022. And we'll talk to you in a couple of